Well, welcome back to our series called The Great Wait. Last weekend, we learned here and at 95th Campus how to wait and to listen. I understand that our pastors did a great job. Pastor Rich spoke at Hobson, Pastor Brett at 95th, and so I'm going to try my best to keep up with them, all right? And a great job. They've already started. I want to talk about learning to wait in a different way that maybe you've never thought about before. As we do that, um, how many of you have been doing some waiting at the mall the last couple of weeks, both campuses? Let me see your hands, okay? All right. How many of you are looking forward to doing some waiting at the mall? Yes. I hear the moaning when I say that. Yeah. Or perhaps you've been waiting in your car and you've been listening to radio. You can't help as you're waiting for Christmas to hear music. I heard some great music this weekend at both campuses. But you know something? Um, there's some of the music out there that really, when you think about it, has some bad theology to it. I don't know where I was or what was going on, but the song that came to my mind recently was Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Now, fun, great little song. It has some really bad theology to it. And uh, I was going to sing it for you this weekend, but... <clears throat> having a hard time with my voice. So I've asked Renee, who has a God-blessed voice, if he come out. And uh, Renee, just uh, give us a, a couple lines of uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, would you? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And he knows when you are sleeping. And he knows when you're awake. And he knows if you've been bad or good. What, what, what? What'd you say? He knows if you've been bad or good. There we go. That's the part I wanted to hear. Because if you keep going with that song, you know Santa Claus has a list of those who've been naughty and nice. So your whole Christmas and my Christmas, okay, depend on how naughty or nice we've been. If we make the nice list, it's going to be a great Christmas. If you made the naughty list, you're in trouble. How many of you are afraid you may be on the naughty list? You say, Pastor, it's just a fun little song. I know it is, but we have a tendency in our songs sometimes to give away how we also think and feel about God. And a lot of times we apply the same kind of idea toward God. We treat God like a divine Santa Claus. And God has this list, and I hope I make the list, the nice list. Because I know I've been naughty, but I hope I make the nice list. When I talk to people, people who don't call themselves Christians, and I ask them if they believe in heaven, almost all of them say, oh yeah, I do believe in heaven. I'm just not sure that you know, Jesus is the way, and I don't, I don't know if I agree with all that, but I believe there's some kind of eternal hereafter. And when I ask them, well, what do you think will qualify you for that eternal hereafter? Oftentimes, more times than not, the response I'll get back is something along the line of, well, I hope and think I've been good enough that I'll make it into, you know, the other, the other side, the, the other place. At least, at least I really hope so. And oftentimes when I talk to believers, those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, I am amazed when we start talking about heaven and God, and I'll say something to them about their relationship to God. They'll, 
They'll go back and base it on, well, I hope I've been good enough that, that God will, will let me into heaven. I, I hope I've been good enough this year that God can, can bless my life. Now, I don't want to be a downer on Christmas. I don't want to be a Scrooge or a Grinch, but let me just say to you that if, if your enjoyment and my enjoyment of Christmas is all about how good we've been, we are going to have a really bad Christmas. Because Christmas has really nothing to do with how good any of us are. None of us are good enough to make it to Christmas. None of us. In fact, let me throw you a little bit of a curveball by sharing with you that Christmas is more about being sorrowful and disappointed than it is about being joyful and festive and happy. Say, Pastor Dude, you are ruining my Christmas. I want to be happy this time of year. And you're telling me that this season is all about being sad and disappointed. Well, here's what I mean. Before you can enjoy Christmas, you have to deal with the sadness and the disappointment of Christmas. Say, Pastor, you got some explaining to do on that one. Well, I'm not going to explain it. I'm going to let Moses explain it. Now you're thinking, wow, you... Your coconut was in the sun way too long. We're talking about Christmas. You're telling me I've got to to face disappointment before I can have the joy of Christmas. And now you want to talk about Moses. I don't remember Moses at the manger scene. So what do you mean? Well, let me explain it. Moses, one of God's great servants, one of God's great men. You know, Moses had one mission in life. And that was to get God's people from Egypt, where they had been enslaved, to the promised land that God had promised their forefather, Abraham. Now, it wasn't a mission that Moses volunteered for. Oh, when he was a prince in Egypt, if you know the story in Exodus... He uh, had an idea in his mind that he could deliver his people somehow. And while his plan backfired on him, it didn't work out very well at all. And he ended up running for his life where he spent the next 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. That's when God spoke to Moses and said, Now, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to deliver my people my way. And Moses said to God, no. He gave God all kinds of excuses why he wasn't the right guy. In fact, he even suggested that God send his brother Aaron to do the job. Has God ever, excuse me, called you to do something? Have you ever felt the Holy Spirit leading you to do something and inside, you just didn't want to do it. Anybody, either campus, experience that? Sure. Go talk to a neighbor, or get involved in ministry, or give a gift, or whatever it is. And there's just something in you that was like, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. I, 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 don't, I'm not, I don't feel I can do it. I don't feel like I'm able to do it. Well, God 
convinced Moses because God wouldn't take no for an answer. And so Moses went back to Egypt and ten plagues later, he was leading the people of God out of slavery toward the promised land. It became his whole focus, his whole mission in life to get them there. And it was no easy mission. There was so much grumbling and complaining. He just couldn't make them happy. Not only that, but sometimes they were hungry and other times they were thirsty. There were the enemies from without that attacked them and there were the scallywags within the camp of Israel itself who kept on saying to Moses, we want to take over this ship. We want to turn around and go back to Egypt where we had it better than this terrible wilderness. In fact, God got so tired of the bellyaching of his people, despite the miracles he was doing for them, that he said to Moses one day, you know what, I am going to get rid of them and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses, I mean, if it had been me, I may have agreed with God at that point. If you know the story of the Israelites and they're grumbling and complaining, but Moses, Moses speaks to God as only Moses could and he said in Numbers chapter 14, verse 17, Please, Lord, prove that your power is as great as you have claimed. For you said, the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. But he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. In keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please pardon the sins of this people just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. Please, God. And God listened to Moses' prayer. Moses, (laughs) Moved the heart of God. Now God required that those who murmured and complained would die. That's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But the next generation, and oh yes, Joshua and Caleb, who were courageous and brave, who did not complain, they would go into the promised land. Wow. Moses was quite the man of God. Moses was a good, good Great, great man. That's what makes the next passage really hard to understand. It's at the end of Moses' life. God tells Moses to go climb Mount Moab, excuse me, Mount Nebo, in the land of Moab. And here's what God says to him. Deuteronomy chapter 32, if you want to follow along in your Bibles or in your iPads or iPods, whatever you have, all right? If you've got the scriptures tattooed on your arm, find it, okay? All right, but the scriptures, all right? Deuteronomy chapter 32, you got it? Look at verse 48. Watch what happens. God is speaking. Deuteronomy 32, verse 48. 
That same day, the Lord said to Moses, go to Moab, to the mountains east of the river, and climb Mount Nebo, which I, by the way, have had the privilege of being able to be up on that mount several times, which is across from Jericho. Look out across the land of Canaan, the land I'm giving to the people of Israel as their own special possession. Then you will die there on the mountain. You'll join your ancestors, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and joined his ancestors. For both of you betrayed me with the Israelites at the waters of Meribah at Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. You failed to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel there. So you will see the land from a distance, but you may not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. You may not enter the land. Moses, the man who talks to me, the man who moved me to spare the people, the man who put up with the grumbling and the complaining and all the heartache, you may not enter the land because you disobeyed me. Man. That's how God handled Moses. (laughs) I can't even stand in Moses' shadow. What's God think about me? What's God going to do with me? And what was it that Moses did that was so bad? Well, the people had been grumbling and complaining because, by the way, has anybody grumbled or complained in the last week or two? The people had been grumbling and complaining because they were thirsty. And Moses, you know, went to God. And there's a lot of people, right? And he says to God, God, you know, the people are complaining because they want, they want water. It's not enough that they've seen you provide when they have a need. Now they're grumbling and complaining about it. What do you want me to do? And God says to Moses, take your staff, go to the rock There was a rock there, evidently. It must have been a big rock. Perhaps it was a small rock. And God says, speak to the rock. Speak to the rock, and water will come out, and I will be glorified among the people as they see this water just bubble out from underneath this rock. However it happens, God is going to be glorified. So Moses does what he's told, kind of. Numbers chapter 20. We pick up the story in Numbers chapter 20, verse 9. It says, so Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels! Okay, we know, we know this isn't going in a good direction. When your pastor gets up and addresses you as rebels. Moses is ticked. He's, he's fed up. He's had his own issues with the people. You think God is fed up. God is, you know, God's perfect. Moses, the human, is just fed up. He says, listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Remember, there's a lot of them. He's got to talk really loud. Wait a minute. You hear what he said? Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out. So the entire community and the livestock drank their fill. Have you ever just been really, 
really so angry at your car or at some machine that you just laid back and just kicked it or beat the daylights out of it? I hope it's not been a person, all right? But a rock or a thing. Anybody just ever let loose? Wow, a lot of anger in this community. 95th, I'm sure some hands went up there. Okay, well, Moses, you know, he just gets fed up, and he just looks at that rock, and he says, you know, I'm, and bam, bam, and the water comes out. And at that moment, when he must have felt some sense of relief or perhaps some sense of embarrassment for just, you know, busting out in front of everybody, Verse 12, it says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. Man. I don't know if I were writing the script that I would have written it that way. Okay, so he blew it. But when you think about all that he had to put up with, when you think, think about the fact that God was ready to, you know, to, to get rid of these people at one point in time, it just doesn't seem fair that God takes this one incident when Moses fails to glorify God, when Moses won't wait, when Moses goes to the rock and he hits the rock instead of speaking to it, when he doesn't say God will provide water, he says, must we provide water? And so he has the power. You would think that God would say, you know, Moses, given everything you've been through, buddy, I'm going to give you a pass on this one. Don't do it again. I'll be honest with you, if I was writing the script, I would have given Moses a break. I want to see him in the promised land. Anybody beside me? If you really want to be or pretend you're holy tonight, you can say, I disagree with you, okay? Because you already know the story. But humanly speaking, I think all of us would sit there and go, dude, give him a pass. Give him a break. Give him an opportunity. But God says, no. You're not going into the promised land, Moses. Because Because with God, listen, with God, sin and disobedience is a really serious issue. It matters a lot to God. And I think it's really important for you and me that it matters a lot to us as well. Because you and I live at a, in a culture at a, at a time when sin is just not such a serious issue anymore. We're entertained with sin. We laugh at sin. We watch sin. It happens all around us and we get so used to it that we literally find ways to kind of justify our sin. In our disobedience. Sometimes we think to ourselves, you know, if I were God, oh, that's where we get in trouble. That's what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan said, don't think about what God thinks. You think about what you think. You interpret life the way you want. You do what suits you best. Be your own God. Instead of waiting on God and trusting God in his word and doing things God's way, what did they do? They rushed, so to speak. Get what they wanted when they wanted it. We do the very same thing. We rush God. 
we rush God. We sometimes try to take over for God. We try to do what? What God says he will do. And we sin as a result of that. We disobey as a result of that. You know, our culture is trying to rewrite the rules. Have you noticed that? We're trying to rewrite the rules about what is good and what is bad. We're trying to decide what we believe is moral or what is immoral. And we're calling the immoral moral now. We're calling the moral immoral. Strange, isn't it? Strange gods we are, aren't we? In fact, even the church, even theologians are doing this. They've been doing it for quite some time. But even our theologians are are rewriting the Bible and are kind of deciding what, what really God is all about and what really makes sense in light of human logic and light of human ethics. And so what we end up with are men who call themselves pastors and doctors of theology who clip and edit the Bible and get rid of the stuff that they don't agree with morally, sexually, whatever it happens to be, and then they present it back to us and say, now, this is really how God feels, and this is really how God thinks. And in most cases, God is very easy and light on sin. Now, it doesn't matter what the theologians do. It doesn't matter what you and I think. The God of the Bible takes sin seriously. So seriously that someone like Moses, who's probably the closest human being in terms of relationship to God that there's ever been, when he blows it in exasperation and doesn't listen to God, God says, Moses, because of that, you will not enter the promised land. Why? Because of sin, and sin must die. And so all he gets to do is go to the edge of Mount Nebo, look across the land, and God took him. Christmas is like a journey. We journey toward Christmas. It's like a a, a promised land that we move toward. But what we have to understand is, in order to make it into Christmas... We've got to make it with perfection in our lives. And because none of us have perfection in our lives, all of us are tainted with sin. We are sin-infected. We can't cross over into the promised land. We can't cross over into a relationship with God. If we've only sinned once in our life, that's enough to keep us out of the promised land. And the early Christians understood that. The early church understood that. And the early church, when it approached Christmas, it always came first with a sense of sorrow and a sense of repentance because it knew, it knew, they knew they didn't deserve Christmas. Stop. Stop with the noise. Stop with the Christmas frenzy of giving and getting gifts and attending parties and baking and cooking. At some point, just stop for a moment. Don't let yourself fall into Christmas morning, into the festivities of opening up the gifts and proceeding forward without some sense before you get there of having understood that you don't deserve Christmas and I don't deserve Christmas. Some moment, 
before Christmas arrives. Reflect on the fact that you and I are sinners. who don't deserve to have a good Christmas. In fact, right now, I'd just like to invite you to bow your head with me for a moment. And as a church, let me just pray for us for a moment here at 95th. Father, we uh, come to you to confess to you that we move through life at such a fast pace from Christmas to Christmas. It's almost a performance, God, that we put on with our decorations and our gift buying and our gift giving and our meals and our baking and even our programming. And we don't stop to realize the sobriety of our our situational God, we don't deserve this Christmas or any Christmas. And Father, part of our journey is realizing that so that, oh God, we can enter into the joy and the amazement of Christmas. Father, we confess to you our sinfulness. We confess to you our brokenness. We confess to you our shortcomings. We acknowledge to you that we don't deserve to go into your promised land. That there's nothing we can do for ourselves. But you have done everything for us. In Matthew chapter 4, it says, In the land of Zebulun, of Naphtali, beside the sea beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, in the western suburbs where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas. Christmas is God coming to us. And leading us into the promised land because he takes our sin on himself and dies our death for us and says, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas to you. 
That's the joy of Christmas. That's the celebration of Christmas. That's the amazing part of Christmas. It's that we get to the promised land and realize we can't get in. And then God comes along and says, I'll get you in. Pardon my Christmas art, but here's what it looks like. There are these uh, two big divides. In fact, let's make them really big. All right? And on one side stands despicable me. Everybody say that with me at both campuses. Despicable me. Despicable me. See, I don't want to talk about myself that way. Well, you are. So am I. All have sinned and come short of God's glory. We don't deserve to go on the land. On the other side is God. Beautiful, holy, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful God. Despicable me can't get over to God. And God sees me over there and God says, you can't come over here because you have sin. You're like Moses. I don't care how good you are. You can't make it here. So Merry Christmas. I'm coming over there. He sends us the greatest gift ever. And that's Christ. And Christ literally comes and he crosses the chasm for us. It's kind of a cross. He takes me by the hand and he brings me over to God's side. It's pretty simple, huh? That's what Christmas is all about. No wonder the angels sang out to the shepherds in Bethlehem that salvation had come. Are you ready for Christmas? You're not? Are you ready for Christmas? Are you waiting for Christmas? Are you waiting with a sense of humility and brokenness and repentance so that you might embrace the joy and the salvation and the excitement of Christmas? That's the journey God has us on.